This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Jesus, we just sung the lyrics, Behold the Christ. And that is my primary fundamental prayer for us this morning, that you through your spirit would allow us to behold you, the real Jesus of the scriptures. And we acknowledge that you're not a myth or a fairy tale or some type of religious figure that we've created to make ourselves feel better this week about how hard life is, but you are alive, you are risen, you are king of all creation, you are seated on your heavenly throne, and you have gifted us with your presence right now, this morning, through your Holy Spirit. And so we say we welcome you, we invite you, we thank you that, that we have not just created a clever topical sermon this morning to to give us a little boost to go out and have another week, but we stand on the authority of your holy scriptures this morning, and we declare the promises that you've given us to make these scriptures alive and active in our hearts, to do the change in our hearts that only you can do for your glory and for our joy. And so this is what I beg you to do in this room this morning. I pray that no musician, no song, no preacher, no one on stage would be remembered, but only you, Jesus, would we truly behold the Christ this morning through you anointing your word and anointing me as the preacher as I do my best to deliver your word to your people. We love you. We thank you for being such a loving king. And we thank you for your presence and your power now. It's all for your glory, for your fame, which results in our joy. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Welcome again. Got a question for you guys as we jump in together. How many have seen the movie Back to the Future 2? All right, praise God. All right, I think we have just a visual. um, There's no real purpose in this other than it's just amazing, and you know it's going to be a good morning uh, when the preacher starts his sermon with a picture of Back to the Future 2. So this movie came out 1989. Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox, I believe he won an Oscar for his performance in this movie. It's quite an incredible cinematic feat of excellence. Uh, I'm kidding, only kind of. You should really see it if you hadn't seen it. But one of the reasons I love this movie as a child and still do is that the bulk of this film took place in what they were portraying to be the future. So it's 1989. As far ahead as they could think into the future was 2015. Okay, so my point is the future is now, today. I mean, they had hoverboards and flying cars and Nike sneakers that hydraulically tightened onto your feet to fit your foot. They had jackets with dryers built into them in case you just fell into a large body of water on your way to work, I'm not sure, but it would dry you off. Amazing things based in 2015, and here we are, the future is today. Technology is everywhere. It's, it's amazing the things that 
have been done and accomplished through technology. I love to have conversations with my friends and daydream about what mankind may hold for us in the next 10 to 20 years in regards to technological advancements. It's fun to think about what's going to happen between now and 20 years from now. And I had this conversation with my, my father a year or so ago. He's almost 70 years old. And I asked him, Dad, if you could have... As a 16-year-old young man, if you could have caught a glimpse into the future uh, and seen the technology we have today, what is the one thing that would have just like exploded your mind that you had no compartment for at the time? And his answer to me has stuck with me because it was surprising. His answer was the internet. The internet. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. If you think about it, even by today's standards, the internet is dumbfoundingly Amazing, And I have to be careful when I think about the internet because if I think about it too much, it can become a source of anxiety because the internet, what is the internet? Where is the internet? Who owns the internet? And what happens if someone decides to blow up the internet today? All of these things should be, if they're not, great concerns for you guys as they, as they are for me. I'm kidding, kind of. I've had this very conversation with some of you guys in the room multiple times. Probably the internet. It's crazy. Google is incredible. You can learn to do almost anything on the internet. You have to be careful. Please be careful as you're exploring the internet. By the way, who runs WebMD? And how is it that every symptom that you look upon WebMD leads to cancer? Everything. It's in, sorry, tangent. If you have a rash or a sore elbow, don't go to WebMD. Go see your doctor. It'll be much, much safer. Back to Google. Sorry, side note. Google is incredible, and you can do a fascinating social experiment on Google. I don't know if any of you guys have done this, but you can type a few. Uh, a few words, the beginning of a phrase, and Google will automatically populate for you what the most search ending to that phrase is. Have any of you guys ever played around with this? All right, a couple of us. We're going we're gonna to play this morning. You guys ready? Okay, let's, one of you is ready. Me and you are going to play Google Feud this morning. Let's check it out. A few phrases I typed in just to see. Now remember, this is mankind revealing to us things about us in regards to what we are Googling on the internet. The first one, who is the blank? Any guesses? I'm just going to wait until someone responds. So any guesses? <laughs> okay, good, good options. Who is the richest man in the world? Okay. Next, where is my keys, car, those are all mind. Where is my mind was the number one. I'm not sure if that was a literal or a... Next, where do you... Okay, good, great, wrong. Where do you go when you die? Hey, there's hope. Great thing to be ask, asking on Google. I hope they found a Christian perspective. I doubt they did. Uh, next one, this was interesting. How do you... I was thinking maybe it would be ride a bike, change your oil in your car, build a redneck bomb in the shed in your backyard. I mean, anything, but it was, how do you get pink eye? <laughs> I promise you, apparently this is a, a significant concern for humankind today. Uh, I thought it was just somebody touches their eye and they touch your eye, but there may be more to it. Uh, here's the kicker. Prepare yourselves. Don't get mad at me. This is your fault. Humankind. <laughs> 
Googling the last one, why does, two words, that's all I typed, why does, and what do we have? My pee stink. I promise, I did not make this up. This is not my fault. Apparently, this is a big issue for the human race. We are Googling most, consistent, most consistent, consistently uh, that question. And so as I was playing this game and doing some experimentation and processing the direction for the sermon this morning, I typed two words. Life isn't fair. fair. Life isn't fair was the number one populated result there. As humans... We do not like it when life feels unfair. I believe fundamentally at the core of our being, we, we have a desire and longing for fairness and justice to be served, of course, as long as it has our best interest in mind and it makes our life easier. See, I believe that we, we have something called sin and brokenness and things aren't the way that God designed them to be. And so in that sin and brokenness, this longing for life to be fair becomes very skewed and one-sided. And I don't know about you guys, but the greatest evidence or fruit of this taking place in my own heart is when I'm driving. Anybody else? By myself, of course, not with any, any of you in the car I believe this is a, a manifestation of my desire for justice and fairness. I've been wronged, and I want the person who is responsible for the wrongdoing to pay for justice to be served. So let's, let's create a scenario for us to see if we can feel what I'm talking about, this desire for justice, but this skewed perspective on what fair really is. You're on the highway, four-hour trip ahead of you. You're in the left lane, cruise control on 79 and a 70, and you are making good progress. 79, for some reason, feels like you're not going to get a ticket, but 80 is like, don't go 80, 79, trust me. I, and so you're making good progress, and a few times along the way so far, you've encountered some people who are playing what I like to call the old get in the left lane and go slow trick. Right, babe? I say that, oh, he's playing the old get in the left lane and go slow trick again. And so you... you ride their bumper just a little too close to encourage them to merge. Uh, they might not have, have taken driver's education, and so you might have to encourage them with some flashing headlights. Finally, they merge and let you get on with your very important trip, because clearly your timeline and what you have going on is more important than everyone else on the highway. So you're making good progress again. You look in your rearview mirror, and suddenly what you see moving at what seems to be the speed of light is a yellow 83 El Camino, and before you know it, they are on your bumper hard. They are riding you. They clearly want you to get over. And so instantly, what I would feel, and I felt this, is fury. Who do they think they are? Do they not know who I am and how, yada, yada? And so you might give them a couple of those brake checks. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody? <laughs> You pump the brakes a couple times just to let them know I am more important than you and this is not fair, but eventually you give in, you merge to the right lane and you let the raging mani maniac pass you by. You continue on your trip back to 79 cruise control. A couple minutes pass, you look up into the distance and you see blue lights on the right side of the road. You're thinking, first, man, I'm glad that wasn't me. Second, you get closer, you see it's a state trooper. They've pulled somebody over. And as you get close enough to see, you guessed it. Who is it on the side of the road? The 83 Butter Yellow El Camino. And you instantly experience an internal sense of joy and satisfaction as you pass by them, pulled over on the side of the road. You guys know you've done this. You might even give them a little, like, hey. <laughs> 
you feel so justified, like justice has been served. How dare they ride my, my tail like that? You feel this joy because life has unfolded in a fair way for you. They got, they got what they deserved. Who do you think you are? That's my first question. Who do I think I am? We have such a skewed lens of justice and fairness. We want fairness when it makes our life better, when it makes our life easier, but when it comes to the way we behave or the speed limit we drive, we want to redefine the idea of justice and fairness when it has to do with us. For most of us, we crave fairness and justice when it benefits us, but we want to redefine it when it has to do with the way we're really living and operating. A lot of people in our city would freely claim to be spiritual people. Most people would even claim to have some connection to God, but at the same time, these people are rejecting Jesus. And one of the most common issues and loudest arguments I hear against Christianity today is that the teachings of Scripture cannot be true because it would be unfair for God to operate the way we believe God operates as Christians, especially when it comes to the ideas of hell and judgment. I would have to agree with you. My main argument for us this morning is that the way God operates is absolutely not fair, and this is the greatest news that human ears could behold this morning. Stick with me. I think Jesus makes this pretty clear for us in the parable, laborers in the vineyard, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, that was just read for us aloud, where Jesus is implementing one of his most utilized teaching tools, the use of parable, as he is seeking to strengthen or reinforce a truth about God or God's people by the use of storytelling. Beautiful. He was an expert at, at this, an incredible teacher, the best teacher and so we're going to dig into this parable. Before we do, or as we do, I want us to consider some variables, some, some key players in the parable so that we can hopefully get a better grasp for what Jesus has for us this morning, okay? So in the parable, we just heard it read, we've got a master, the master of the vineyard. We've got laborers, workers. We see an interaction that entails the hiring of these laborers. And then finally, the payment, the exchange between master and laborers, the payment they receive for their work. There are three groups of laborers. The first group worked all day in the heat, in the scorching heat. The second group got hired about midday, did a little bit of work. And the final group gets hired at like 4 p.m. and barely gets their hands dirty before the day is done. This is where we're jumping off of here. The master in the parable is a, is a picture, an illustration of God. God is the master. And the laborers are a depiction, an illustration for God's people, Christ followers. And the interaction, the master hiring the laborers is a picture of the salvation of God's people. And we see that the point of tension, the main climax of tension in the parable has to do with the payment the laborers are receiving for their work. This payment illustrates what we receive from God, how God feels about us, and what he gives us as a result of becoming his people or being hired into the vineyard, if you will, according to the parable. 
I believe one of the primary things that Jesus wants us to feel this morning as we walk through this parable is our tendency to respond to God the way the laborers who worked the full day in the heat responded to the master, okay? So let's take a look at verses 10 through 12. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Let's try and put ourselves in the shoes of these grumbling laborers for a moment, okay? Maybe a modern-day paraphrase of this parable. Imagine you are desperate for work. You are broke, and you literally do not know where money is going to come from to put food on the table tonight for you and your family. So you stand on the side of the road, and you get hired to paint, let's say, the outside of this church building tomorrow morning. It's 100 degrees by 10 a.m. Brutal. You start the day with just two other workers, but more and more people show up throughout the day with paintbrushes and join in on the work that you've already completed half of. Then if that wasn't bad enough, as soon as you start to feel some relief from the scorching heat of the day, you look down at your watch, you realize it's close to 4 p.m., about an hour left in the work day. You can't believe it, but the boss rolls up in the work van and another 15 workers pour out with paintbrushes in hand and they just begin painting over the two finished coats that you've already completed for the day. You can't believe the boss has hired people this late in the day, but you brush it off because you'll be off of work in like 45 minutes anyway. So you try and just let it slide. The clock strikes 5 p.m. The boss rolls up with a fat stack of $100 bills in his hand. And surprisingly, he has you, the one who was hired first, and did most of the work go to the back of the line. You're exhausted. You've got a pounding headache. Your feet hurt. You're dehydrated. You're sunburned. And he starts to pay the guys who showed up an hour ago first. And to your surprise, he's putting a crispy $100 bill in each one of their hands. And you think to yourself, surely he's going to pay me at least $200. I mean, look at all that I've achieved. I started work early. I worked through the scorching heat. Surely he'll pay me more than them. The line dwindles down. You get closer and closer to the boss. It's finally your turn. You hold out your hand and you can't wait to feel the weight of those two crispy $100 bills placed in your hand and the money hits. You open your eyes and what do you see? A hundred bucks. A hundred dollars. He paid you the same as he paid those guys who worked an hour and barely, barely broke a sweat. The workers in the parable grumbled. They complained to the master. They essentially said, you're not being fair. Listen to how the master responds in verses 13 through 15. But he replied to one of them, this is, this is the beginning of grace. This is gentleness, friend. He had every right to start with, who do you think you are? So gentle, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what's, what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. 
After all, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? In other words, the, the grumbling workers weren't upset because the master didn't pay them what he had promised, but rather they were upset and furious because he was being generous to other workers who they deemed to be less deserving. The problem in the parable is not injustice, but the grumbling of the laborers that is produced from a heart of entitlement. The workers had lost perspective completely in the matter of one workday. They so quickly forgot that that very morning they were standing on the street corner, empty-handed, with no hope of putting food on the table that night if it wasn't for the intervention, the hiring of the master. They had lost perspective. And this is important because I believe as Christ followers, we are all so prone to lose perspective in regards to what God owes us and what is truly fair for us and God. So Jesus, like he often does, offers a solution for us and for the disciples. It's not a coincidence that the, the next passage, the next few verses in Matthew that follow this parable are these. We're going to take a look. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And as, as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, they're, they're headed to Jerusalem. He's, he's headed towards the cross. It's the Passover. He took the 12 disciples aside, and as they were traveling on the way, he said to them, See, like I told you, we're headed to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. These were the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, brutally tortured and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is pointing them and preparing them for the cross. Jesus is pointing us, Axis Church, to the cross right now. The cross of Jesus is meant to bring clarity and perspective to the illogical lens we view God through when our entitled hearts grumble to him and say, you are not being fair, whatever the life circumstance may be. Through Jesus, God offers us payment that we do not deserve. One of the greatest mistakes we can make when approaching God is believing that we deserve anything good from God whatsoever. Who do we think we are? That's the question. In the parable from Jesus, remember, the greatest point of contention between the laborers and the master is the payment, the payment. In the same way, one of the greatest misconceptions of religion and Christianity today and really throughout all of history has to do with payment. Most professing Christians and professing spiritual people in our city believe what God owes them, how God feels about them, has everything to do with their performance, how long they've been working out in the hot sun, if you will. 
Dangerous religion, dangerous Christianity, dangerous spirituality lies to us and tells us that our standing before God has to do with the amount of good we do in contrast to the amount of bad we avoid. This is not the truth of Jesus or the gospel that we find in the scriptures. Guys, guys, let's be honest about ourselves for a moment. We are all incredibly gifted laborers, workers, but the work we effortlessly achieve outside of God's intervention is hating him, turning our backs on him, declaring ourselves to be the God of our own lives, deciding what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, and living according to our plan and purpose, the way we think life should be designed and not the way he tells us to live. This is a lengthy way to describe our sin. We're professional sinners aside from God's intervention in our lives. The Bible tells us simply that sin earns payment from God. Here we are, payment, the point of contention. Romans 6.23 defines for us what life being fair would look like for all of us. Romans 6.23 tells us for the wages, the payment, what you earn by working from God for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. This is what God owes us all. This is fair. Sin is why we die physically, and sin earns us eternal separation from God in everything that is good forever and ever and ever, and this is fair. It's illogical to define fair in regards to yourself and God in any other way. God can't be partial to evil, letting some slide overlooking some, punishing the really bad, but not the not that bad, of course, as long as you place yourself in the not that bad category. Letting some evil slide and go unpunished would be unjust and would mean God was not good if he didn't punish all evil. And this is impossible for him. God has always been and will eternally exist as 100% good, 100% holy, 100% just. And this makes him 100% God without fail forever and ever and ever. No exceptions. This is why the payment for our sin is death and hell. If you don't like this, I, this isn't fun I wouldn't choose to give this to you guys if I wanted you to like me this morning. I don't like this a lot of times. If this seems unfair and you believe you're a pretty good person in the not that bad category, then you haven't yet encountered the incomprehensible goodness and holiness and majesty and beauty and perfectness of God our creator. If you're feeling this sense of this isn't fair for God to be this way, you're also unaware of how comprehensively sinful and wicked you really are outside of God's intervention. The closer we get to God, the more we see ourselves for who we really are. Just like the laborers in the parable, standing on the street corner, starving, empty-handed, deserving nothing from God except judgment. 
A vivid picture of this truth, such a beautiful poetic depiction of this is Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 9. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. We go here so often because this is the beauty of the gospel, and this speaks into what is fair and what is not fair. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This was your eternity. This was your eternal payment. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Here's where the Apostle Paul, the author, is getting ready to tell us that God wasn't fair and that he didn't give us what we deserve. But God because God was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, once we performed well enough to get his attention, once we painted the building completely enough, no. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's not because you worked hard enough or sacrificed enough or achieved anything. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of when you were hired, how much you've accomplished, so that no one may boast, implying so that God and Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, will get all the glory, every ounce of it. The second part of Romans 6.23 is also the wonderful news that follows the word but. For the wages, the payment of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the words free gift here. This is beautiful. God's unstoppable love, his unending forgiveness, his relentless acceptance of his children, Christ followers, is free for us. We cannot earn it. We cannot pay for it. This is the very nature of the grace of God. However, it was not free for God, and it was not free for Jesus. It was horrifically painful. It was cosmically costly. If we return to the conversation of fairness when it comes to our relationship with God, we can fix our eyes on the cross of Jesus to see what fair would have looked like for us. The cross is Jesus getting what we deserve. Jesus, the only perfectly sinless one, fully deserving and earning to be paid by God with unending love and applause and acceptance and adoration from God instead stands before God at the end of the work day, if you will, and Jesus extends his hand and with joy receives the Roman six payment for our sin. Jesus stretches out his hand, fully deserving to be paid by God with acceptance and approval and love and adoration, but instead receives the piercing payment of a Roman spike nailing him to a criminal's cross. Jesus came to earth to work, and he worked hard for us. Through his beautiful, perfectly obedient life, Jesus earned the unending love, the applause, the acceptance, and the adoration of God that we are all created, longing to experience for us. On the cross, God pays Jesus with the wrath we have earned so that he can pay us for what Jesus has earned with love, unending love, impossible to mess up love, perfect love on your best day and on your worst day. 
This is not fair. Do you see how ridiculous it is to grumble about anything we receive from God outside of wrath? The cross of Jesus is meant to to bring us back into perspective. The cross of Jesus is meant to squash the painful and dangerous game we play when we compare our lives and our possessions and our achievements with other brothers and sisters in Christ, somehow being deceived to believe that we deserve something more than what they have because of, after all, how much we've sacrificed and worked in the hot sun all day. The cross is meant to regain our perspective on what is fair. The cross of Jesus levels the playing field and is meant to get our eyes off of ourselves, off of each other, and back onto Jesus. That's why we're here right now. That's why we're here this morning. That's why the Axis Church exists. We earn and achieve nothing but sin, and God offers us love. This is scandalous love. This is unfair love. And I don't know if there's a more shocking, vivid display of the scandalousness of this love than we see in Luke's account of the thief on the cross. I'm so excited to share this with you all. Luke 23, 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. One of the criminals who were hanged railed against Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I want us to pause for a moment because the next words that you hear is where we are given insight. We are given the privilege to see God changing the heart of this thief and giving him a true, real perspective of what fair is and what unfair is. But the other criminal rebuked that criminal saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You're on a cross too. And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We are getting what's fair. We deserve this. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. He does not deserve it. And he said some of the most beautiful words in scripture. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, which means I guarantee it. I say to you, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. This criminal, he could have raped and murdered and abused and squandered his life away in heinous sin. This thief on a cross was literally a Christian for a matter of minutes before he died. He accepted Jesus after wasting his life as he was dying, being executed for the life that he had lived. This is where it gets scandalous. Listen. And the way God feels about that man on that cross is the same way God feels about you, Christian. Even if you got saved when you were three years old, waited to have sex until you were married, had never been drunk or done drugs, never stolen anything, had perfect attendance in Sunday school, and never ever missed an honor roll. 
These are incredible achievements in life and should be celebrated. I pray with all that is in me that this is my daughter's testimony. However, as Christ followers are standing before God, the way God feels about us on our best day and on our worst day has nothing to do with our performance. It has nothing to do with whether we've sacrificed our lives on the mission field or squandered our life away in sin. Salvation, restored relationship with God, our creator. God's love for you, his people, is only about Jesus and has everything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with the perfect sinless life of Jesus, the horrific sin-erasing death of Jesus on the cross, and the glorious death-defeating resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Amen. Wait a second, that doesn't sound fair. A little girl, three years old, never did anything wrong, a rapist on a cross, God loves them the same? Yes, God's love is not fair. The cross is fair. It's what we all deserve. Jesus took it for us. This love, I call it scandalous dangerous love, because if misunderstood, it has the tendency to create in all of us the thought, well, if God loves me the same, whether I obey or disobey him today, why not just live life however I want to live? If this is the response in our hearts when we consider this scandalous love of God for us through Jesus, then we're still missing it somewhere. Something is not right. We are not truly believing and seeing the heinousness of our sin, the horrific cost of Jesus on the cross, and the radical love that God offers us through simply believing in Jesus. All that thief did was believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that what he was doing on the cross was for him. And he will be in paradise with us. We will see him and he will say, God loves me as much as you. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> yes, it's amazing. The more God allows our hearts to truly and accept truly accept and experience this scandalous love, the more our hearts will naturally hate our sin. God must allow us to receive this love more and catch a glimpse of how radical this love more and it will not produce in us a heart that says, well, we might as well keep on sinning. He's gonna love us either way. The love of God produces a hatred for sin and a desire in our hearts to glorify him and obey him more. And the freedom that Jesus offers in the gospel is though we may give our lives to obedience and glorifying to God, we will fail today. The love of Jesus allows us to not hide in our sin, but to repent for our sin, to accept the love of God once again and continue moving forward to obey him and glorify him more. My prayer is that as we take communion together this morning, that God will continue to do the work perhaps he's already started in your heart and he will finish the work in our hearts to help us receive and believe this scandalous love more than we ever have this morning. The Christian life is a journey of believing and believing more that God loves you this way because of Jesus, not because of your successes or failures. Jesus is alive. 
He is risen, he is king, he is seated on his heavenly throne, and he is here right now in this room, present with us through his Holy Spirit, and he offers us communion like he did with the 12 disciples right before he would be murdered. We have broken bread that is meant to fix our eyes on the cross. We have wine and juice that is meant to fix our eyes on the blood of Jesus. So I pray that we would receive this scandalous love in a new way and that we would together say, you're right, God is not fair and this is the best news I've heard today. Let me pray. We'll celebrate communion together. Jesus, it is so hard to believe that this is true. God, it's so hard to believe that you could love a little five-year-old girl who's become a Christian or a rapist on a cross the same way. But you must give us perspective, perspective through the cross of what would be fair for all of us but what you offer us instead through the finished work of Jesus. This life is hard. It's a journey of believing. And so we together ask you to help us believe more even now as we try to visualize the cross and we consider what it means about the way you feel about us right now, even if this was the worst week we've ever lived. If we are in Christ, your love is unharnessed. and It's impossible to mess up. We love you. We thank you praise you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.